For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Meanwhile, Here on Earth. This program features in-depth conversations with the leading names in the subjects of UFOs, abductees, the paranormal, panel discussions, and the very best and brightest of the next generation of writers and researchers. Meanwhile, Here on Earth, the show breaking new ground in alternative talk with your intrepid host, veteran investigative writer and researcher, Peter Robbins. Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Meanwhile Here on Earth um, on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. If you're listening to the show but would rather be watching it, uh, you can do so on KGRA's Facebook page or go to YouTube and type in KGRA into your browser, then Meanwhile Here on Earth. You can also access all previous broadcasts uh, there as well. Become a KGRA subscriber and you can access every single broadcast in the history of this network. As regular viewers and listeners know, the usual format for this show is our guest um, has an opportunity to share with us how they became the person they are. Uh, we've had wonderful guests, um, authors, public speakers, documentary filmmakers, abductees, experiencers, and um, often the shows are somewhat lighthearted, poignant, um, moving, uh, like life. I've never done a show with an adversarial um, theme to it, but um, the situation right now warrants doing an investigative show. And I'd like to start by thanking one of our guests, Denise Stoner, who uh, was supposed to be our scheduled guest for this evening, but has graciously allowed me to reschedule her for uh, August 30th. Uh, she is a panelist on this show, as um, is Kathleen Martin, who um, both of whom will be guests on another panel uh, next week, which I'll tell you about at the end of this show. Let me say that in making the decision um, to format the show as I have tonight, then working with my hastily assembled team of outstanding guests and putting together the particulars for this program, it has in no way been um, an enjoyable or, uh, well, an enjoyable experience for me. And I think that they probably feel the same in their own ways. But I felt I had no recourse. And in the interest of full disclosure, let me say that the subject of tonight's broadcast, the uh, uh, 
opinions concerning the veracity of Travis Walton's account of his 1975 abduction incident um, that I have considered Travis a friend and a good friend for more than 20 years. Um, to one degree or another, I think our other guests either are friends with him or respect him and take his account seriously. Uh, and you should know that up front. Uh, more understanding better than many people how one can be completely deceived in this field. It was not outside of the realm of possibility for me that Travis or anyone else for that matter might have been involved in a deception. This very much despite my hope, feeling and intuition that this was not the case. But more important than my friendship with him is the truth. The truth about what happened that night in Wilderness, Arizona's Sitgrave National Park on November 5th, 1975. And that is the question we, would, we will be devoting ourselves to this evening. Whatever any of us think about the veracity of Travis's account or want to think about it, it cannot, will not, and should not be the question here. And then there is the matter of the attack waiting in the wings on the credibility of the 1961 Betty and Barney Hill abduction. So where to begin? Well, at the beginning, if briefly, and I'd like to take really not more than a few moments to just read to you from the flyleaf of Travis Walton's book, Fire in the Sky. On November 5th, 1975, a group of loggers in the mountains of northeastern Arizona observed a strange, unusual bright light in the sky. One of those men, Travis Walton, recklessly left the safety of their truck to take a closer look. Suddenly, as he walked toward the light, Walton was blasted back by a bolt of mysterious energy. His companions fled in fear. When they reported an encounter with a UFO, something they would have considered impossible if they had not witnessed it themselves, the men were suspected of murder. For five days, authorities mounted a massive manhunt in search of Walton or his body. Then Walton reappeared, disoriented and initially unable to tell the whole story of his terrifying encounter. Now, one of the central aspects of the arguments to counter Travis's story is that a light was shown into that clearing from a fire tower. And it was done so by an unnamed and still 45 years later unknown Confederate who would have allegedly been in partnership with Travis and his best friend at the time, the crew chief who was driving the truck that night, Mike Rogers. It is essential to this case being made for fraud that that happened. This premise, um, how can I say, if we are to take uh, seriously the allegations against Travis. Among other subjects to be addressed by this panel is that what if and why it is completely out of the realm of possibility. That tower, allegorically at least, will be coming down tonight and strictly through uncontested information that even the most, most, most vocal skeptic and debunker will be compelled to acknowledge as fact by the end of this program. We will also be asking the significant question of why this series of attacks 
on a very well-known UFO abductee come at this precise moment in time, and a great deal more. I'd now like to introduce you to my guests for the evening. And I'm just going to take a moment here. Okay. Although she is not with us quite yet, I am optimistic that she will be joining us shortly. Kathleen Marden is one of the leading ufologists of our time. Since 1990, she has reach, researched the perplexing nature of UFOs and the non-human entities associated with highly advanced aerial vehicles, not through the work of others, but via her own groundbreaking research, investigation, and experimentation. Her research has extended to archival collections and the United States government's involvement in the investigation of UFOs and its major studies. This has combined to give her a depth of knowledge that few others possess. Kathleen earned a BFA degree in social work and was employed as an educator and education services coordinator while attending graduate school. She is a certified practitioner of regression hypnosis and the quantum healing hypnosis technique. Additionally, she offers the Awakening Souls support group of experiencers who feel an intense calling to be part of the answer and to assist others who are beginning to awaken to their relationship with NHI, non-human intelligences. Her interest in UFOs and contact began in 1961 when her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, had a close encounter and subsequent abduction in New Hampshire's White Mountains. She spent 15 years in painstaking investigation of the Hill abduction case and continues to seek the scientific analysis of the compelling evidence. Kathleen has worked on three comprehensive studies of nearly 5,000 experiencers, two of which she initiated and saw to the end of her fifth of her five professionally published books. Her bestseller with nuclear physicist Stanton T. Friedman is Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Encounter, Experience, I'm sorry. She and Stanton worked together for nearly 14 years and collaborated on two additional books, Science Was Wrong and Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. Her investigation of six intergenerational cases of abduction contact uh, are included in the book that she wrote with Denise Stoner, the Alien Abduction Files. Uh, her fifth book, Extraterrestrial Contact, What to Do When You've Been Abducted, is a comprehensive guide to contact for experiencers, those who love them, professionals who work with experiencers, and the interested public. Additionally, she is a contributor to the Edgar Mitchell Free uh, Foundation's Beyond UFOs, the Scientific Consciousness and Contact with non-human intelligence. She has given on-camera commentary on the discovery, history, National Geographic, Destination America, science and travel channels, and on several documentaries. Most recently, her work has been featured on Ancient Aliens and several, tra and several travel channel shows. Kathleen has lectured at conferences across the United States and in Canada, Mexico, Brazil, and the UK. Additionally, she has given video lectures in Denmark and China. Her website is kathleen-marden.com. Denise Stoner is proud to be a part of MUFON Experiencer Research Team, ERT, 
working under and is assistant to director of abduction research, Gwen Farrell, and assistant director, Dr. George Medic. She also holds the following positions as Florida MUFON field investigator, star team member, SSD, and is also assistant state director of Florida MUFON. Denise co-authored and published her first book, The Alien Abduction Files, as noted earlier, released in May of 2013 with Kathleen Martin. She holds educational forums for both public and private gatherings for abduction experiencers. Her involvement in the field spans more than 40 years. Denise has an educational background in business and psychology and is a certified hypnotist specializing in regressive hypnosis. She began her research in hypnosis under Dr. Bob Romack of Denver, Colorado. They worked together for five years on pain control, smoking and cessation, smoking cessation and past life regression research. Denise has worked for, worked for eight plus years in Denver, Colorado as Department of Interior National Park Service for the Saudi Arabia team. Their task was to do planning, design and construction of the first national park in that country. It is called ASIR. The team of four won an award from Park Service for their work. Denise was in charge of the $3 million contract, working with the embassies involved with visas and foreign travel, was liaison between the four team members and Saudi requests, protocol, and more. Her retirement, if you want to call it that, from the federal government, after spending 12 years with the Navy doing background investigations for new recruits wanting to enter the nuclear power school, has allowed her to expand her work with UFO research and investigation. Denise has appeared on TV to include the Travel Channel, PBS, Weird Florida with Charlie Carlson, and has been a guest on many radio shows. She is currently moving forward with some exciting new projects, including work she is doing in the field of past lives involving possible abductions along with paranormal experiences and how they might connect in past to present history. Denise facilitates private workshops for experiencers in the Orlando, Florida area, along with MUFON meetings for the public. Her hypnosis certification was earned through hypnosis and regression training at the Hypnotic Research Society by Dr. Ronald P. DeVasto. Advanced Forensic Regression Study through the National Guild of Hypnotists Incorporated by Donald J. Moten. Denise can be contacted through her email address, which is dmstoner1 at gmail.com. And Denise, welcome to Meanwhile Here on Earth. Thank you, Peter. I'm so glad to be here tonight. Our next guest is Jennifer W. Stein, and she is best known for her award-winning 90-minute documentary film about the Travis Walton story. She has been an activist in the UFO community for about 20 years. As a coordinator and founding member of Mainline MUFON, a community educational service of the Mutual UFO Network in Pennsylvania, Jennifer serves as a state section director for the Mutual UFO Network in Pennsylvania. She has published articles and periodicals about the UFO phenomena, precognition, synchronicity, and the crop circle phenomena, as well as articles about the Travis Walton documentary. 
She has spoken around the world at numerous conferences on UFOs. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Crop circles, the Walton story, as well as ancient artifacts and ancient architecture that appear advanced for their time. As a young adult, she developed her entrepreneurial skills working in a family-owned business, while earning a Bachelor of Science in Textiles from the University of Arizona in 1983. She is married to her life partner of 40 years and has two adult children in the Philadelphia area of Pennsylvania. Jennifer Stein, welcome to Meanwhile Here on Earth. Whoops, she's muted. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for telling me I was muted. I'm just trying to be quiet because my phone is dinging and I'm connecting with Kathy and all sorts of stuff happening. But it's it's a pleasure to be here and it's also an unfortunate need to be here. Our pleasure too as well, Jen. Our final guest, but certainly not least, James Clarkson has been an investigator for over 45 years in criminal justice and in the realm of UFO research. He is an honorably discharged military police investigator and served for 20 years as a city police officer holding the titles of detective sergeant and fatal accident team supervisor. After retiring from the Aberdeen, Washington State Police Department, he became a child abuse detective for two years, followed by 10 years service as a fraud investigator for the state of Washington. In 1987, he joined the Mutual UFO Network becoming a lifelong, uh, because of a lifelong interest in the UFO mystery. He served as the MUFON State Director for Washington from 2007 until 2017. Jim has investigated reported UFO encounters as part of his effort to explain the importance of the UFO subject to the public. He has lectured throughout Washington State as major at major conferences repeatedly across the country and in Paris. During a lecture in 1983, he met a lady named June Crane, who had worked in top-secret laboratories at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base when she was young. Her story, as she shared it with him, was the basis for Jim's book titled Tell My Story, June Crane, The Air Force, and UFOs. Her revelations serve as corroborating evidence in support of UFO crashes and cover-ups. He has also investigated and written about a crashed UFO in Westport, Washington in 1979. James Clarkson lives in 
Port Townsend, Washington with his wife, Joanne, a retired registered nurse and a brilliant poet. Jim's website is James, J-A-M-E-S-C-L-A-R-K-S-O-M-U-F-O.com. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, especially in this company. And I also echo, I wish we weren't here for this purpose, but we're going to do a superb job examining exactly what's going on. And I will start one minor correction. The terrible things that happen on uh, cell phones. It's jamesparksonufo.com. <laughs> okay, perfect. And <laughs> Race, no would, you, would you bring the, uh, Kathleen? There's Kathleen. Kathleen, welcome to Meanwhile here on Earth. I mean, welcome back. <laughs> um, I, it is a pleasure having you here in the allegorical sense, but doing this show is far from pleasure. Um, however, I think you all share with me a sense of obligation to put forward what we know and understand about the circumstances surrounding this current controversy. And Kathleen, I'm going to ask you to make your opening statement first, and it can be as long as you like. I am unfortunately here as the result of some unethical behavior uh, and uh, by some people who simply didn't do their homework, as Stanton Friedman would say. And, <laughs> and because of what could be a medical problem with a man who was close to Travis, who uh, worked with him for uh, quite a long time. Uh, Travis married his sister. And uh, we don't really know, or I certainly, I do not know what the problem is. I had uh, written, I had communication with Mike Rogers in the past. And I'm, I'm very concerned because I spent a great deal of time at the American Philosophical Society uh, reading Philip Class's files and uh, on the investigation of the Travis Walton case, or I should say the attempted incineration of the <laughs> Travis Walton case. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mike Rogers was extremely supportive of Travis and his family. He was intelligent. He wrote uh, very, very well. I was impressed by everything that I read. In addition to all of the information that I uh, was able to acquire at the American Philosophical Society, I went to other archives. And I had all of the archival files from uh, uh, Jim Lorenzen and Coral Lorenzen from, the, uh, from APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, who uh, had investigated Travis's case. They were the, the biggest investigators who got in there right away to do the investigation. Uh, and Dr. James Harder from the University of California at Berkeley uh, was there as well. He was uh, their chief investigator. 
and uh, did a very fine job. He was also a hypnotist. And in addition to that, I had the files from Ground Saucer Watch, for example. I, I believe that I have probably all of the files that are available. This hmm. is what I attempted to do, with, and uh, Stanton Friedman certainly was there with me doing this research for our book, Fact Fiction and Flying Saucers, because Travis's case was one that we wanted to include in the book so that we could separate fact from fiction and demonstrate how people with certain agendas attempt to distort the information in order to, uh, I don't know, deceive the public. I'm not sure what they're doing, if they're attention seeking uh, or what, but why would one intentionally uh, tell false information or give false information uh, to the public. Um, you know, some people say maybe they're, they work for an intelligence agency, maybe some, but there are others who seem to be maybe wannabes who really are, are having great difficulty. And uh, I guess they have overactive imaginations, but they simply have not done their homework and have not gotten the facts right. Thank you, Kathy. Um, it occurs to me that we have viewers and listeners who are not obviously as familiar with the particulars of this case as we are. Um, Mike Rogers, who Kathy mentioned, um, grew up in the same town as Travis. All of these guys did. Uh, a small town, a very small town in rural Arizona called Snowflake at the time of the event population 5,000. Mike and Travis were best friends. Mike was the crew chief of that logging crew. Mike was the man who was behind the wheel of the truck that night when the UFO, uh, UAP flying saucer appeared in that clearing. And not just for years, but for decades, Mike stood by Travis's account without exception. Like the other men involved passed and repassed uh, his polygraph tests regarding what he had seen and experienced. And for reasons we can only deduce. And, you know, life is complex and so are people and so are our relationships. Um, things went sour somewhere along the line in the last years. And Mike made a very well-publicized statement that he was retracting his support uh, of the account as he had stood by it for many years. And then I think only several months after, he not only recanted that statement, but he made a public apology to Travis um, and also created a meme which was all over the internet for those of us that follow these things, stating that apology. Travis accepted the apology. And then over the past month, two months, it's all reversed again. Um, I know Mike um, to a degree. I consider him a friend. We've met quite a number of times. I was a guest on his old radio show here on KGRA. Um, we spend time together in Arizona. 
I visited the site of the event with him and Travis and other people where Travis related the event on location. And Mike had no disagreement with that. Uh, I also want to um, read a statement in here from um, a colleague of ours who you will meet in a video clip from Jennifer Stein's uh, award-winning documentary, Travis, The True Story of Travis Walton. Ben Hansen is a retired FBI profiler who now is the host of a popular weekly television show on, um, is it the Discovery Channel? I think so, but forgive me, uh, Ben, if I'm wrong on that. And this is the statement that he sent me earlier today. I recently filmed with both Mike and Travis on a new project. This was after the contentious situation and comments that I had heard Mike make on a podcast. During our filming, Mike was very cordial, talkative, and no different in his presentation or retelling of the events than uh, the previous time I had met him. Although there was some awkwardness between Mike and Travis, Mike never contradicted any of the major parts of the story, nor did he imply or suggest anything such as a hoax or uh, denigrate Travis or the rest of the crew's reputation. If he had new information to provide or desired to correct any sort of record, our filming would have been the time to do it. Instead, it appeared as if the proverbial hatchet had been buried. I'm not up to date on the latest comments from Mike since that time, but it's my opinion that if he has now once again stated contrary information, that this was due to his own personal issues or motives that I cannot understand. He has certainly had uh, been on record innumerable times with a consistent testimony in line with the rest of the crew, including passing polygraphs. So it's unfortunate but true that we should take as suspect anything he would now say to the contrary, end quote. Um, I'm now going to ask Denise to come in and make your opening comments and statement, and please take as long as you'd like. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I have had Travis to come to Orlando twice to speak for my MUFON group. I met him the first time when he came to speak for our group, and unknown to me that night, my neurologist came, and his background study is on who's telling the truth and who's not. He's fascinated with UFOs since he had his own experience. Mm -hmm. So at the end of Travis's talk, uh, my doctor asked if he could go and speak to him, and there was a line waiting. So as soon as he could, he went and asked questions, um, some about what happened to him and some to see, you know, how he would word things. And when he was done, he came to me and he said, that man's telling the truth. Hmm. I had him back a second time, had a room full of people, and also got to know him personally when I was spending time and speaking up in Maine. Um, I was there in a lake house overnight, so was he. So we had plenty of time during a couple of days to talk, exchange information, to learn about each other. And so I'm speaking 
uh, about him as a friend and a gracious speaker, someone who's willing to answer any questions you have for him um, and to to talk, looking directly at the audience, walking up to them, shaking hands, standing with them, allowing pictures. I never once, and I have a background in psychology, saw him look even slightly nervous about what he was doing or saying. So as a friend tonight, I support him. And I believe everything that he said happened to him did. I'm an experiencer myself, and I wouldn't like this to happen to me. So I'm here for Travis. Thank you, Denise. Um, James Clarkson, I'm going to ask you to make your opening remarks next. And um, understand that there's latitude when I use the term opening remarks. You as... Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A lifelong investigator, 45 years in uh, law enforcement and in UFO studies, are somebody I look up to and admire in terms of your methodology your ethics, and your drive to get to the truth, whether it's a criminal investigation or involving an alleged UFO event. And I'd like you to take the time to cover as much of the various aspects of the personalities who have come into this picture to um, denigrate um, Walton's account, as well as anything based in your many years of UFO investigation. So please take as long as you'd like, Jim. Thank you very much, Peter. This is a matter of deep concern to me, and I will right out front state that Travis Walton is a man that I know as a friend and that I respect. But I am also here in another capacity. I feel that it's my role not only for this program, but for the entire subject of ufology. For many years, I've spent a lot of time speaking to the public, any group that I could find an opportunity to raise awareness, get people to see just how we fit into the cosmos, the fact that we're not alone. I think the evidence is overwhelming. Exactly who and what and why, I do not believe has been explained or defined Somebody may have the answer. I haven't seen it yet, but it's real. I always tell people that there are some things I can do and some things I can't do. I can't bring them a crashed UFO. I can't bring them an alien body. And scientists 
they have, I always show a picture of the very large way, array, and I say, if you're going to communicate with the universe, this is how scientists do it. But I'm a UFO researcher, and these are my receivers from the cosmos. And I show a picture of a crowded city street. Could be anybody. My job as an investigator is to evaluate witnesses and attempt to locate evidence. And I guess in trying to keep with my role as an investigator in the criminal justice field and for the state of Washington, I've tried to stick with my training. I do the same thing in the field of UFOs. I was taught early on to be a bit of a schizophrenic. <laughs> no matter where I go or what I do, there's this other person with me all the time. And I talk to that person and I listen to them very carefully. And it is the reasonable man or the reasonable woman, whichever you choose. And I'm always taking the information that comes in front of me and I am saying, what would a reasonable man conclude if he was confronted with the evidence that's right in front of me now? Bearing in mind that there may be more evidence in the future, there may be less evidence, there may be things occur that are totally different. But that's the person I'm always talking to. Before I came on here today, I remembered my absolute favorite prosecutor down in Grace Harbor County. And I could see him leaning up against the railing when he would do a closing on a felony trial in the courtroom. And he would say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, don't leave your common sense at the door. <laughs> and I try to do the same thing with my investigations. And I'm hoping that people who are trying to decide, do I want to still believe in Travis Walton or will I ever believe in Travis Walton and his encounter or Betty and Barney Hill, that you will use your common sense and that you will weigh out what is the most probable explanation, even if that explanation is that these cases are extremely important in the history of ufology because they are about as close as we get to an extremely detailed encounter between human beings and non-human intelligence, whatever form it may take. Um, Jim, I'm going to ask you to continue on and let's start to discuss here the woman who kind of set this in motion, a woman in Australia who, by her own account, uh, before establishing her website, which was the original attack fortification, so to say, on the credibility of the Walton case and waiting in the wings on that same website, uh, it's called $3 Bill, if I remember correctly, the name of the website? $3 Kit. $3 kit, right, um, that this woman, who is hiding behind a pseudonym, spent, again, by her own account, three full months studying UFOs before going online with her debunking website. She refuses to give us her real name, and you had a direct exchange with her. I know two other people that did. Um, we also have several other players who have come at Travis from different directions. Um, and you have also looked into them as an investigator as well. 
But first, let's talk about this woman who goes by the name of Charlie Weiser. Is it Weiser or Weisner? It's Weiser, W-I-S-E-R. Okay. You had an exchange with her. Um, yes. you, re you related it directly to me by virtue of sending me your original fully worded message to her and her point by point, rather sarcastic, condescending, if I may characterize it in that manner, response to it. Um, if you have that at hand, you're certainly welcome to present it. But as an investigator, and let me say here one more time, for anybody that is watching who has already made up their mind or is on the fence or feels this is a joke. We have five people here who already have stated that they're friends with this man, that they take him seriously. So why should I even bother to be listening? Well, in part, because the professional reputations of every single one of us hangs on our take on this and where we come to stand on it. And that's not a joke to us. Um, debunkers, by definition, have the intellectual arrogance to tell us that they know. They just know that such things as visitations from planets beyond our solar system or other dimensions in highly technical technological machinery is science fiction nonsense. And the thought of alien abduction is certainly something beyond that and laughable, if not dismissible. Skeptics, however, is something else entirely. Believe it or not, each one of us has to be a skeptic. Some of us are at the point in our many decades of research together where we no longer have the luxury of disbelief. And that is extended by several light years times 10 to Kathleen, Denise, and Jennifer, who are experiencers. And it's a dangerous tipping point when you know that a phenomena is real to say, well, here's this new case. And because I know it's real in my own experience and my studies and the physical evidences that I could bring into a court of law and corroborable witnesses who have undergone polygraph, et cetera, repeatedly, we cannot assume that. So we have to be skeptics too. And while we present the information that we have here, we are doing it in the best spirit that we can of objectivity. I can only ask you to take my word for that. Jim, would you continue? Yes, certainly. I, um, I wrote a very honest and open email that I got off of that website. Quite frankly, I became alarmed because the first thing that I saw was a posting on Facebook by a UFO researcher whose work I respected with a picture of a fire tower and saying that this was the theoretical location of the UFO that abducted Travis Walton. Mm. Well, that surprised me greatly. And I immediately reacted and I said, wait a minute, before we all jump to conclusions here, what exactly are we talking about? And I got this all will be revealed. And then I found out about this website. So I went to the website and I started looking at it 
And I looked at this extensive, it is possible scenario that was being thrown at the Travis Walton case. And then to my horror, I discovered that there was another equally detailed tab devoted to Betty and Barney Hill. So then I started looking for an about tab on the website so I could say, well, who is this that's putting this out there? And the reason I did that is in my world as an investigator in a professional situation where ultimately cases might go to court, there are a few situations where you're allowed to use confidential informants, but it's only under the closest scrutiny of a judge. And usually the opposing counsel will really rip into you the moment you attempt it. Witnesses have to identify themselves. They have to establish their background. They make statements under oath. In this case, it's before the court of public opinion. And I guess we're assuming the people are going to be sincere and try and tell the truth. That's the assumption I try to operate on. And it isn't a joke. And it's not, it's not facetious or silly. I got informed by this Charlie Weiser, whoever or whatever it is, whether it's a person or a, a unit in the NSA, I don't know which. I got informed that my entire professional career was just a role-playing game. <laughs> I was called an RPG. That's all I'm doing. It's just all a big RPG. Well, boy, there's a few Jeez. moments when I wish it, it had just been a game <laughs> along the way. Yeah, But it wasn't, and it isn't. And I take my UFO cases the same way. I believe in this stuff. I believe in studying it. I believe in trying to interview people and reach out to them and get them to ask their own questions and move along from there. Well, I already mentioned that I know Travis Walton. I know him because I met him at numerous conferences and during off times, I got to talk to him as did my wife. We both consider him a friend. We both consider him someone I respect. Same story with Kathleen Marden through the years. And I've always been fascinated by the Betty and Barney Hill story, most especially because on the recorded interview with Barney Hill under hypnosis, when he screams, mm. that scream is a scream of a man in mortal terror. You can't fake that. That's the real deal. Yeah. Now, obviously, we could have a long discussion about how and why the circumstances might arise that someone would be that terrified, but he certainly was. When I have been an investigator, I do not have to see something in order to draw a reasonable conclusion for a series of facts. The instances where, as a police officer, I got to see somebody committing a crime were fairly rare. It does happen. You can put yourself in the right place at the right time. But most of the time, you develop probable cause. You obtain warrants, search warrants or whatever, you accumulate evidence, you put together a case, you submit it to a prosecutor, almost inevitably, if it's a felony case, you get a laundry list, a laundry list of things that you have to go back and tighten up, redo or add to. And at some point, the prosecutor says, I'm satisfied, I'm going to file charges. And that's where we go from there. So my purpose has always been to seek out evidence and testimony to prove or disprove whatever was alleged. Same thing this time. 
I did not approach Charlie Weiser as a joke. I approached this person or entity, whatever it is, because when I went on Facebook, I saw that Charlie Weiser has provided no information about themselves. I, I'm not even sure about the Australia thing, although I'm not, that doesn't necessarily get Charlie Weiser off the hook, considering that the NSA has massive facilities in Australia. So I don't know. I'm not saying I know this for sure. I'm saying it's in the realm of possibility. Any new explanation for the Travis Walton account encounter has to address at least three areas. The exact location of the abduction. Where was the clearing? It has to address the polygraph results that were obtained by Cy Gilson. And I would refer the public back to the reports that you can find online that appear on Arizona Department of Public Safety stationery. And three, you have to address. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Travis Walton's deteriorated mental and physical condition when he returned after five days absence that resulted in him being in a hospital for five days. So I'm, I don't see a lot of those things in this theory. I see a lot of maps and a lot of pictures of fire towers and whatnot and things and the phrase, it is possible. Well, there's a lot of things that are possible. <laughs> I want to bring up before I, I go too much further ahead. Bravo to you, Kathleen, for bringing up your suspicions about Mr. Rogers' situation. My wife, who is not directly involved in this, although she is a friend of Travis Walton, listened while I was going through this recent four-hour uh, presentation on the Internet, two hours of which were devoted to a long, rambling conversation with Mike Rogers. And her question was, she wanted to know if he was suffering from some kind of dementia. So apparently there are several people who are all on the same page about this. Do we know for sure? No, we don't. I would also like to point out that the first known web activity for this website, it started being established online as far as Google goes and its robots as of July 4th, 2021. Interestingly, last night I asked my oldest daughter who worked for 10 years manufacturing websites hmm. for a large business concern to take a look at this website because I wanted to know how, how exactly do you determine when a website goes active? And she explained it to me and showed me how to do it. 
But she also said, did you know there are copyright violations on the website? Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, Luke, where did those photos of Travis Walton and his crew members come from? And I looked at them and I hadn't thought about it this way, but I opened my copy of uh, Fire in the Sky and I looked at the photos in the back and sure enough, they look exactly like the photos on the website. And so then she asked me a question she pretty much already knew the answer to. She said, is the book copyrighted? And I said, it most certainly is. And it turns out it says all other photographs and illustrations copyright 1978 and 1996 by Mike Rogers. <laughs> so interestingly, if Mike Rogers wanted to make a complaint, this is what is known as a DMC by DMCA violation or Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And if Weebly gets contacted about this, they don't want to get in bad with Google and Google is the same way. They're very fussy about copyright violations and they will yank your website in a heartbeat if they think you're using somebody else's material. So this is not by any means a sacred new website that has been carefully thought out. I, I want to briefly address a couple of things in reference to the lengthy Mike Rogers conversation. He drifts all over. He talks about UFOs that were seen before the Travis Walton abduction. He mentions a conversation about it two years after the fact, something about a chainsaw sitting on a tree stump. At one hour and 37 minutes in is one of the only two times that I heard Mike Rogers get real resolve in his voice and sound like he really was thinking carefully about what he was saying and saying something that meant something. That was when the question was asked, you're backing up the story that there was no hoax? And Mike Rogers says, right, 100%. At one hour and 41 minutes in, Mr. Rogers expresses his anger at this Arizona film producer that he had been talking to. And he said, quote unquote, he did this just to make a name for himself. Now, my take on this whole thing, I go back to my favorite and most horrifying type of criminal investigation hmm. was fraud against the elderly. And I would do those cases for free. I mean, I was being paid as a police officer, but they're worth it. <laughs> you want the bad guy. You want him really bad because these people are completely innocent and they are manipulated. They are groomed and manipulated by con artists. Many people do not understand that when you hear the phrase con man, that what you're actually saying is confidence man. They gain your confidence so that they can get something they want from you, like your money or control over your property, or perhaps in this case, a confession. I'm throwing that out there because I'm hearing a lot of that in here, especially when I saw a posting about exchanges, posts back and forth, where Mr. Rogers is talking about wanting Mexican food and he can't wait to be taken out to dinner. And then, since this is all in the COVID environment, 
and I don't know this, again, I'm speculating, but how lonely was Mr. Rogers? How much in need of attention? How grateful was he to have somebody take him out and take him to dinner and listen to him or drive him out to the site where this one of the most important events in his whole life happened? Uh, then I would also like to bring up Later on in the interview, that film producer is interviewed at length. And one of the things that really got me going was I heard him say, quote unquote, at two hours and 48 minutes, the last thing I would do is, is to call into UFO stories and start pitching the story. Then he went on and on about Newfork, the National UFO Reporting Center, and he mentioned by name that Peter Davenport basically knew all about it, and that all of these calls were on the New Fork website. Well, I stopped the tape there at that moment, and I picked up the phone and called Peter Davenport. Why? Because we've been friends for years, and we talk to each other just about every week. I'm worried about Peter because of the amount of work that he tries to do single-handedly. His, his efforts in the UFO field are Herculean and heroic, and I don't know how he keeps it up. So I asked him about these phone calls that are supposedly on his website, because I couldn't find them. And he says, they're not there. <laughs> and I said, well, that's interesting. He said, do you know anything about them? And he says, the only thing I know about those calls is that when the torch was passed and he became the director of New Fork, which I believe was in the early 90s, like it's either 91 or 94, something like that. That was when Robert Gribble, the retired Seattle firefighter who founded New Fork, passed the torch to Peter. But before he did, he took all of his audio tape files and donated them to a lady named Wendy Connors, who was a UFO researcher in the Southwest. When she got old, and I believe she had some health problems, she donated all of those tapes to archive.org, which is a great resource that we should all be using. Uh, I just found out last night from my daughter, once again, what a tremendous library of knowledge and information, especially in our field, that is on there just waiting to be viewed. And I found those recordings. They're on there starting November 6, 1975. There are eight recordings numbered 051 through 058. I listened to every one of those calls and took notes. They're mostly people in Heber, Arizona, reporting the big news about the Travis Walton event that was in the papers and that they heard about because everybody in town was talking about it. And Bob Gribble, who's running the phone on the Seattle end, is asking questions and saying, could you get a hold of anybody in the family and have them call me? I would love to talk to Travis Walton or his brother or any of those people. Would you see if you could get them to call? There's no pitching of the Travis Walton event trying to sell it on a UFO reporting site. One of the phone calls includes a rumor about a wildly distorted version of the Travis Walton case in the area, which if you've ever been on the phone or on the receiving end, of a major UFO event, you get like these false positives where people call in and they tell you wild, crazy stories that seem to be at the root, 
related to what you're investigating, but you know that they're way off. Well, there's one of those in there. There is, I believe, at least one or two of the calls that do involve family members. But basically, they're speaking back and forth with Robert Gribble. Nobody's trying to sell anything. They're just explaining things to Bob Gribble, and he's asking them questions. Jim, I'm going to ask you to hold it right there. You'll sum up when we get back, and then we will go to Jennifer Stein. This is Peter Robbins on Meanwhile Here on Earth with my guests, Denise Stoner, Jennifer Stein, Kathleen Martin, and James E. Clarkson. We'll be back in three minutes. Hey members, the new KGRADB app is now available on iOS and Android devices. Gain on-demand access to any KGRADB programming. Download any show directly to your mobile device to listen or watch on the go. Go to the App Store and search KGRADB. Welcome to the new KGRA digital broadcasting website, thekgradb.com. Here you'll find great new content, including the KGRA Classics, great shows from our archives. You'll be able to see the showtimes and information so you can see what show is currently on air. The On Air Live button. So just go to this section and you'll be able to hear the show live with exceptional sound quality. We also have the Vault section. Make sure to subscribe to get access to great content and special features. We have the make content for our latest news and events, so make sure to sign up and you can be part of our forum. So make sure to check out the new KGRA digital broadcasting website, the KGRADB.com. We look forward to seeing you there and we hope that you enjoy the new website. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Families don't have to talk about everything, but they should talk about how to plan for an emergency. Get tips and resources to make your family's emergency plan. Good evening, and welcome back to this special episode of Meanwhile Here on Earth. I'm your host, Peter Robbins, and joining me tonight are James Clarkson, Denise Stoner, 
Jennifer Stein, and Kathleen Marden. Jim, I'm going to ask you to sum up briefly before bringing uh, Jennifer on, specifically to address the point of what you are saying here, if I understand it correctly, is um, this documentary film producer alleged that there were several recordings existing that were findable on the uh, National UFO Reporting uh, um, website, but not only were they not there, they don't exist. Am I correct in my assumption? No, the recordings do exist. They're just not in a place that anybody would readily find unless you oh. knew a lot about the history. Got it. And um, anything else you want to say in summation at this point before we go to, into Jennifer's observations and then into discussion? Yes, I'll, I'll try to just really encapsulate it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It seems there are only two possibilities for Charlie Weiser and all the info from that website. One, the Travis Walton encounter and the Betty and Barney Hill encounter have been completely explained away by a woman in Australia who apparently casually took an interest in UFOs in order to take down the two most important alien abduction cases in UFO history, or two, Charlie Weiser is indeed a cipher, a creation cover story for whatever forces are seeking to rewrite UFO history for their own nefarious purposes. And I already mentioned the fact that being from Australia doesn't necessarily mean that you are intelligence agency free. Sure. Uh, both sides of this controversy have agreed at this point that Mike Rogers' recollections of what happened are no longer reliable. There is an actual recording of a telephone call from this producer to Travis Walton where there's an apology and it gets poured on so thick that it creeped me out. The, we have a new theory to explain Travis Walton now that's alarmingly reminiscent of the overzealous debunking efforts of Philip Class, and it depends on this it is possible scenario where the abduction site has been identified as close enough to a fire tower that it in fact, when illuminated at night, became the hovering UFO that took Travis away. At least when the public was left to evaluate the efforts of Philip Class, we knew something about Philip Class's background and employment. In the case of Charlie Weiser, we have nothing. In the end, after 45 years, it's a question of who you choose to believe based on how you evaluate the most likely scenario. And 
I'm going to defer to a gentleman who has passed on, who I think all of us love dearly, because he is quoted so adroitly in Jennifer Stein's film that I thought, how can I say it better than that? And that's Stanton <laughs> Friedman hmm. talking about Travis Walton. And this is my conclusion as well. I give him an A-plus rating for integrity, intelligence, and aplomb. How he handles himself under fire, how he puts up with some of the debunkers, I don't know, because they can be really nasty. Travis Walton is a man I know and respect. Like I respect all people who have overcome great obstacles. And I don't think he asked for this event that was thrust upon him. And it totally threw his life upside down. And he's done everything he could to put it back together. In conclusion, I would say we are being gradually acclimated to a broader cosmic perspective. I'm not sure even though we recently have had the UAP report and lots of people heralding the golden age of UFO disclosure, I'm not sure that the secret keepers in our government are all on the same side. Mm. There may very well be a faction that would like to discredit as much as possible. And so in conclusion, I would just say, I do respect and believe Travis Walton, and I extend the very same respect and belief to Betty and Barney Hill. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I will only add before we go to Jennifer, um, I have spoken to several people who have spoken with or communicated with uh, Charlie Weiser. And one of them is somebody who has become a friend on Facebook who I've come to respect and respect their intelligence and power of observation. And he made a post um, the day before yesterday that I asked him if I could share. And I will do it, and you can take it for what it is. His name is Andre Scondris, by the way. Today, I had a discussion with Charlie Weiser on another thread and was allowed to ask her hard questions. But all she did was be evasive and mocking. And she wanted me to continue the conversation on her Facebook page when I asked her what her position was concerning UFOs. I refused, of course. Why should I suddenly move the discussion to her Facebook page? She didn't give me an answer to my question, but the conversation made it all clear to me. She excels in evasiveness. Individuals who are evasive and use fake names have something to hide. All serious researchers I have known use their real names when they publish research papers. Have you seen any track record of Weiser's published research papers on UFOs? And how long has she been doing UFO research? She said three months, and she has published nothing except for her mocking website. That understood. Um, before I bring Jennifer on, I again, in the interest of full disclosure, um, I want to say that for some listeners, the executive producer of a feature-length documentary on Travis Walton is the one to be most suspect of. She has the most materially to lose, and also in terms of direct reputation. So let me give you a little background on Jennifer. First, she is one of my closest colleagues, one of my dearest friends, somebody who is literally a part of my family, 
um, and somebody who I love, admire, and respect. Um, Jennifer is an outstanding documentary filmmaker. And 10 years ago, uh, I had the privilege of working, frankly, at one of the coolest jobs I ever had. I did it for several years. I was an employee of the city of Roswell, New Mexico, working directly out of the mayor's office with the understanding that I helped organize the city's UFO conferences, as opposed to the huge UFO festival in which the conferences were set, uh, helped choose the speakers, and was the mayor's office direct liaison with Governor Richardson um, on any matters related to UFOs. Jennifer had never met Travis, but had admired him for years. And knowing that he was there and that we were friends asked me to make an introduction. Um, that last evening of the conference, she uh, took Travis, myself, uh, one of his sons and a friend of theirs out for dinner. And over dinner, she proposed to him the idea of a documentary that would be fully funded by her, feature length, and do justice to the inaccuracies that most people struggle with from the somewhat popular Hollywood movie, Fire in the Sky. That set in motion a five-year project where Jennifer returned repeatedly to Arizona. I don't know how many times, along with uh, one of our closest colleagues and dearest friends, Bob Terrio, her very dedicated cameraman and our tech guy on quite a number of projects over the years. She met with everyone alive who was involved. She interviewed uh, the retired Sheriff Gillespie, who in the movie version, um, and I'm a movie freak, uh, was one of my favorite characters in part because he was played by the wonderful late great James Garner. Yes. Um, she spent time with all of the men she went to the site repeatedly. She funded the analysis of the scientific data. And the documentary, in terms of documentary quality, um, it's not a great UFO documentary, it's a great documentary. It could be on PBS and hold its own against anything by um, uh, any of the greatest documentary filmmakers of our time. It has gone on to win several dozen uh, international film awards and is a project I am, will always be proud to be associated with as an associate producer and a occasional talking head in the film. Um, the main question really now that I feel we have to address and depending on how much time we have left when Jennifer finishes, we will go into an open dialogue has to do with this key premise that is essential if we are to believe this fabrication was cooked up between Travis and Mike Rogers specifically to get some money from the National Enquirer and in the process completely deceive the other men who were with them that night, men who they grew up with, men who were their childhood friends in part, men they worked with, that they played with, that they knew their families, that they grew up beside. I think, especially um, from a certain mindset, um, I am a, a certain American archetype. I am a wise guy, New York intellectual Jew. And I, if I didn't live in the countryside for the past 15 
years, um, I might, you know, say, gee, here's these guys. And, you know, they probably just got out of high school. They're country guys. They're not sophisticated like me. What do they know? But even to suggest, if you want to turn these good and decent, hardworking guys into a cultural cartoon of uh, some kind of hillbilly, which you know, the level of insult is pretty incredible. And to suggest that they mistook a beam of light, even if it was possible for that beam of light to hit that location in the dark at that moment in the winter with no signaling, signaling as to when the right moment was. No cell phones, no walkie-talkies, no flashlights to a Confederate in a fire tower, no matter how close, shining a light that they would have had to drag up, what, five or six exterior staircases and shined into that area and deduce that somehow these poor deluded souls had mistaken that flash of light for a fully articulated disc-shaped object hanging a mere 15 or 20 feet above that clearing, and then somehow deduced that out of it emanated a bolt of light that hit their friend in the chest, knocked him back 12 or 15 feet, and in terror they then fled. Jennifer is going to address the lighthouse in great detail, and when she is done, the lighthouse theory is done as well. And the nonsense generated by this what if and suppose. Um, Jennifer has sent me a number of visuals, uh, maps, Google Maps, um, some wonderful graphic representations by our uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Bruce Cornett, to help tell the story. And Jen, I will show them as you want. And if you want me just to go on because it's redundant, I will do that. Um, Jennifer Stein, please. Thank you for your patience and the floor is yours, my friend. Well, thank you, Peter, for that lovely introduction. That was very, very kind. Um, I have many things to, to share. So uh, since you set everyone up to look at the lighthouse issue, then we'll look at that. I sent Race a picture of the lit lighthouse at night. Um, it, uh, you I mean find the fire it, tower? Yeah, I'm sorry. That well, they're, they they call it the fire tower. Yes, yeah. it's called the Gentry Fire Tower. Right. This tower is actually two and a half to three miles away from where the actual site took place. Oops. I have been to the site uh, several times, three uh, specifically, doing filming, carrying tripods, walking into the forest, uh, actually creating a, another forest area where we could drive in and schlep equipment. And I sent this map uh, out today. So this is from the Google Maps. And you can see Turkey Springs is listed on the map, and so is the Gentry campground. And the Gentry campground is where the Gentry Tower is. Now that's three miles through undulating hills and valleys. <laughs> so uh, there's no way that you could... Um, and the point I also want to make is that these are experienced loggers who know the area of the forest. They work in it every day, right? How could they 
drive on the rim road, not know they were on the rim road because this tower is on the rim road. And according to the testimony, these boys hadn't driven out of the forest yet. They were still what's called on the forest floor or they were in a, a several hundred feet pathway that they created to do timber stand improvement. So with timber stand improvement, you create an area for fire trucks to be able to enter and you create an area where fire can't necessarily jump from one area to another uh, to conserve uh, fire if it breaks out in the forest and to contain it so the fire department can put it out. So these fire logging areas are designed to block fire. So this is what the boys were driving up. They hadn't gotten to a dirt road yet, let alone driven two and a half to three miles down that dirt road, and then got confused that that was the, the actual UFO they saw. But saying that for some reason they were confused, I have a lot of problems with this story, a lot of holes to, to punch in it right off the top. First of all, there is no hill where the fire tower stands. So Travis got out of the truck and ran up a hill that doesn't exist there. Then of course the lights are shining right up the hill. Why couldn't they see the tower holding the, the fire station above it, right? That wasn't visible to them according to this uh, recent testimony and this Arizona filmmaker who popped this stuff up online as well as this woman in Australia. Then, of course, Travis gets zapped and disappears, or well, gets zapped and thrown 20 feet in back. Did he jump back 20 feet and 10 feet in the air? Um, I find that hard to believe. And then the crew is frightened and they drive away. So then the crew comes back. To me, how did the fire tower fly away or disappear? Right, they came back to the site with the police. They're looking for Travis. Didn't the police see the fire tower? <laughs> you, you can see how very quickly this whole story unravels. And uh, I'd like to make a point that I could have predicted this was gonna happen back in February. January and February, I was starting to get texts and emails and phone messages from Mike Rogers. And I, I feel really bad to have to say this, but I really believe that Mike is ill and probably somewhat delusional. Um, he contacted me to tell me that he fully intended to totally destroy Travis Walton's reputation. And I said, Mike, I don't really wanna be part of this. I. Uh, I have no need to try to destroy Travis's reputation. Travis bent over backwards to help me. And um, we've made a decent film, which you're in. And there's no reason, you know, to further involve me. Um, and since I wouldn't support Mike in his efforts to try to ruin Travis's reputation in some way, he thought I would help him or support him in doing this. Then Mike started to come after me with attacks. Um, sending me texts and emails claiming that I had no right to use any of the images I used in my film because they're either his images or in the likeness of his images and that I never got approval to do that. Travis didn't have approval to give me rights to his images and that I needed to remove them. And 
as a filmmaker, uh, you know, I was just, I was surprised and I was saddened to see that it, Mike did not realize that he signed legal releases with me. Um, I have a fairly good entertainment lawyer. The leases are, are uh, the standard releases that are needed for me to be able to go off and then sell and show this documentary around the world, put it in different countries, put it in different languages, which it is now, and it streams on a number of networks worldwide. So the fact that Mike has changed his mind, that I'm not allowed to use his images, that I have to take my film off the market and take it off the website and take it off these streaming services, and he got mad that I didn't respond to his communications because it was it was an absurd proposition. Um, he, Mike doesn't really understand, I guess, how business works in this in this arena. So I just ignored his texts. And finally, about four months later, I guess he got the bright idea that maybe he should write me and ask for a copy of his release. I gave him one at the time when he signed it, but I guess he'd lost it. So I I agreed. I said, yes, I'll have my attorney send you a copy. No problem. And I was very nice about it. And then he promptly uh, stopped contacting me because he realized, I guess he didn't have a leg to stand on. But you can see that I think there is a desire of this person who wants attention um, to try to stimulate or stir the soup pot and accuse Travis of lying. And I guess the only way he could accuse Travis of lying is to to say that they made this all up and it was a pact that they had. Well, Travis has never confirmed that uh, to me or to anyone else. And then Mike promptly recounted what he said. Uh, apparently, this Arizona filmmaker was told that uh, now Mike Rogers recounts that they made this all up and it was a hoax. So I think what's happened is these debunkers, these wannabes on the fringes of this UFO world, which is a little difficult of a world to wrap your brain around. Most experiencers know that. Um, they've just rushed in and grabbed on to this Mike Rogers story. Like, ah, finally, we have something. We can debunk the Travis Walton story. And they're wannabes that are creating uh, I guess, income from the people who are all clamoring to find out what they're talking about. And to me, I think it's just, you know, a lot of wasted time and energy. And I think it's really very, very sad. Um, this UFO event destroyed these boys' lives in 1978. And it seems like it continues to destroy their lives. Uh, and and I'm just very sad to, to say that this is the state of affairs of the world. And I think this is what's really going on. Um, there are more, you know, little tiny points I can point out, like if this fire station was such a prominent and, and uh, you know, obvious uh, solution to the UFO they saw, then why didn't all the magnificent researchers that have dug deep into this for years, like J. Allen Hynek and, and uh, Leo Sprinkle, all right, Stanton Friedman, all the APRO researchers, plus, you know, Sheriff Gillespie and uh, Deputy Ellison, you know, why didn't they come up with that idea or consider it? And why didn't the dog sniffing, you know, hounds find his trace running up the steps? I even heard some of the commentary, which I sat through and listened, like James Clarkson did. I painfully sat through four hours of 
of a video and audio uh, today, listening to some of the accusations. And some of them were that Travis himself was stuck in the fire tower and seemed to think it was the inside of a UFO that he couldn't find his way out of because there's a chair in the middle of the fire tower. I even think that's kind of strange, right? Um, so uh, there was you know, many, many things that poke holes in it. One of the most important things that I think no one mentioned, and probably because this Arizona filmmaker did not know about this, but Tracy Torme uncovered a vital piece of information that he never put in his film, and I wasn't able to bring forward in my film because I couldn't actually find the person's name. But I did verify the story with some of the local police. Uh, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer, I'm just going to ask you to tell uh, our, our audience who Tracy, Tracy Torme is oh, relative yes, to our event. Thank you. Okay, so Tracy Torme is a Paramount film producer, and he was the one who uh, brought the whole uh, concept and idea of the film Fire in the Sky, right. produced by Paramount Pictures in 1993, and uh, it was quite a successful film for them, recounting, it was a fictionalized story of yep. this uh, Arizona UFO event with the logging crew. But nonetheless, they had characters in the film that uh, were characters like Mike Rogers and Travis Walton and some of the other crew members. So, and in the course of working on the film, um, um, Tracy and Mike became friends and spent time together. Yes. There was a relationship there. Oh, Con yes. Continue. Yes, they did, as did Travis. And in fact, uh, Paramount Pictures bought the rights from Travis for... Right the the screenplay which was modeled on fire in the sky his yeah. book so tracy torme uncovered the fact uh, and he did a lot of research like i did for a good five years before he yeah. you know had the screenplay written and brought it to paramount but he uncovered the fact from the police that an undercover fbi agent was on the adjacent hill the day of and night of this event that took place, November 5th, 1975. And he and his wife saw the UFO craft come in and then hover down in the trees in this Turkey Springs Valley. Yeah. Then they saw the whole forest like blow up, right? And uh, then they saw this craft uh, like three or four minutes later, just zip off at lightning speed. Yeah. As did all the boys, too. The boys, you know, drove up, stopped the truck, saw the UFO. Travis gets out, runs up under it, squats down, is kind of frightened. The UFO is moving and undulating. Static electricity charge builds up. Travis is frightened. He stands up to run back, gets hit by the beam, is thrown, and the boys drive away. So they drive through the forest to the top of this ridge or hill, not to the rim road. They Correct. stop in the forest. They get out of the truck. Mike says, look, everybody get out of the truck and wait here. I'm going to go back. I've got to get Travis. I'm responsible for him. You guys stay here. He handed them um, gasoline from the back where they filled their, uh, you know, their... Uh, saws with the gasoline. He said, look, build a fire, you know, wait here, I'll come back and get you. Cause it's already getting cold, right? It's already dark. 
And none of the boys want to stay in the forest by themselves, so they all get back in the truck. Now, while they're getting back in the truck, or just after they get back in the truck, this detail has not been cleared for me, but I do know that they saw the craft, which was now below them. They could hmm. see the light below them, not behind them where the gentry tower would be. They saw the craft below them and in front of them disappear. So both the undercover FBI agent and his wife saw it disappear. And the five, or I'm sorry, the six other logging crew members see the craft disappear. So they know the craft is gone. They get back to the site and they cannot find Travis. And that's when they realize they have to report him missing. And when they leave the forest, when they do get to the rim road, they don't turn towards the Gentry Tower. They turn in the opposite direction and drive to Heber, which is about a 40 minute drive through switchbacks and dirtback roads. So, um, you know, none of this proposed, you know, new explanation and hypothesis holds water. And it, it, it never would have even, you know, 47, 48 years ago. Um, so that's basically my statements I have to make about the whole thing. And I think we can open it to discussion unless you have specific questions for me. Jennifer, I'm going to jump in here for a moment first. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and scholarship of the terrain and the specifics involved and the fact that we are dealing with ridges and hills. And even if that tower had been close, and you made a point of reminding me that um, uh, our wonderful drone camera operator. Um, who oh, yes. At, yeah. At one point or another, that drone was up in filming over the years and looking in every possible direction. And yeah. you can't even see the fire, the fire tower, tower from Not the my location. Drone yeah. Not in my drone footage. I, I reviewed my drone footage specifically for this evening because I thought, okay, uh, Gary Hilton was a great guy who showed up and did, you know, two full, two to three full days of drone footage. We did yeah. some, we did two days right there at ah. the Turkey Springs location. And then we did other drone footage around, like at the courthouse and sure. over the rim edge. We actually destroyed a, dr a drone trying to film at about 530 in the morning and lost a drone. And then the Navajo Search and Rescue found yes. it for us very interestingly. But in my drone footage, which I reviewed probably two and a half hours of it today and yesterday, there's no tower. Yes. So and again, um, to suggest that anybody, whatever their level of education, sophistication, experience, if that light could have made it there, and again, even if it was a straight shot, we're dealing with canopy cover in a wilderness area. The Sitgraves National Forest is more than half a million square acres and covers parts of three contiguous states. We've been there. We know how dense it is. And to say, well, it's November, the leaves are off the trees, except that it's overwhelmingly, or was at the time, an evergreen forest, there is no way. And again, to suggest that any person, whatever their level of intelligence, would mistake and then stick to the story for 45 years of what they had seen was not a light shining into a clearing, but this. Right. And this image was actually done by a wonderful artist. His credit is on it. It's Claudio Bergman. So it is not Mike Rogers' work. Um, 
Mike is under the impression that I had to remake the film in order to include his mm. images, and that's not true. I had to hire new artists to do images, yeah. although they were modeled on a lot of Mike's drawings, and Mike really helped Travis in the early years visually yeah. create an understanding for people so they could see, well, what did we see? And this, all the logging crew members confirm, is really what it looked like. There was a clearing in the trees. In fact, there was a tree cut the year before. Uh, National Geographic uh, came out and did an expose at one point and used that tree as a comparison, mm. looking at the rapid tree growth that had appeared. Yeah. Because that tree had grown there for 200 years without any rapid tree growth. So there was nothing unique about the soil or the sun or the nutrients that wouldn't have affected the other trees around it. So a yeah. large tree with a large canopy had been cut the year before. Now, and this craft hovered in that canopy that was gone. Yeah. Let's um, uh, turn our attention for a few moments to another aspect of this story, which is one of the most extraordinary pieces of physiological evidence attached to any legitimate UFO incident that I have ever encountered in 45 years of study in this field. And it has to do with tree ring growth and forest growth. The only statistics we have to compare this to have to do with studies that were done of plant growth after radiation exposure at different, differing distances from the terrible Chernobyl disaster. And I saw a post even as early as um, early today and I was up till four this morning. Um, I have been doing my best to coordinate our presenting this in as respectful a manner as possible. And I want to add right now, I think I can speak for all of us in saying whatever is going on with Mike Rogers, we wish him the best. He's not a bad person. Uh, he stood by Travis for so many years. Um, and in a way, Travis got the glory. Um, Mike suffered too, as the other men did. And whatever bitterness and rancor started this initial problem, if he has, if he's having problems right now, we all wish him the best. But on foliage growth, um, I saw a post as early this morning discussing the fact that there is a tremendous jump in tree ring growth in several tree stumps that still exist on the site. And their point was that that's not anything that has to do with anything germane. Um, uh, droughts, etc. natural weather conditions can account for tree rings one year being three times the size they are as another. What we're dealing with here though is remarkable in that it's not just the tree ring growth, it's the distension of the tree growing toward the actual site where only on that side of the tree are the rings distended. And then the statistical analysis of the growth of the forest in that one area. And we're about to see a clip with our aforementioned friend and colleague, Ben Hansen, taking us through what I'm talking about here. And that is right here. In the summer of 2014, we went back to the site to do a field survey. It's been so many years since the original incident that we really did not expect to find anything there. But while we were on the site, a discovery was made. The calculations show that these trees were producing wood fiber at 30-something times the rate they had in the previous 85 years. 
Other trees uh, exhibited the same kind of changes and the effect diminished the farther you got from that spot. Not only was there an extreme growth rate to some of these trees around the clearing, but it seems that there's also a directionality to them. I started checking stumps at the four corners of the compass and discovered that there was a swelling and a thickening of the growth rings in the direction that the craft had been and not on its opposite side. That was where the thickness of the rings were at the minimum. Travis and some of the, the original people who, who did the first surveys had posited that possibly the, the cell growth was caused by radiation. I took that a step further and, and did some digging to see if there's been any academic studies done on radiation and tree growth, and I found at least one or two related to the Chernobyl incident. A university out of Poland did a study in 1997 that found trees that were exposed to radiation after Chernobyl had grown up to three times in volume of accelerated growth as compared to previous years. Our field survey and finding this directionality and, and possible connection to radiation opened a whole lot of new doors that need to be explored. Okay, and now we're quickly gonna to go to a companion piece. Both of these um, are uh, excerpts from Travis, the true story of Travis Walton, the documentary Jennifer labored on for five years. And this one is considerably shorter, but helps to tell the story. Now this tree was probably just a tiny little sapling at the time, but the accelerated growth part you can see here is still solid. After the tree died, the part that was not affected by accelerated growth rots and this other part doesn't. Jennifer, um, before we, we go into a discussion as we come uh, into the last uh, 20 minutes of the show, I want to quickly review these graphics that Dr. Cornett was kind enough for us to prepare for us. So what are we seeing here? What we're looking at is um, according to maps from Google Maps, the UAP, or where you see the little picture of the UFO, is where he inserted the, the visual where the, Travis's UFO event took place. Mm. And he calculates by his estimate that where the fire tower actually is, which is on the Gentry campground, the Gentry fire tower is 3.9 miles away. So that's just about four miles. Um, and he did that with a little mile marker that is on the bottom of the right-hand side of the screen. Hmm. Now, or I'm sorry, it's not a mile marker. It says 2000 feet. So I did a similar one from another Google image and I guesstimated it was about two and a quarter to two and a half miles away. But, um, you know, I think Bruce is probably a little more accurate than I was. He's an engineer and I think he knew what he was doing. So it's like, to me, it's impossible that the boys could have driven four miles and not realize they were on the rim road driving four miles, right? Yeah. Um, so that's that. That's what that graphic is. Okay, and a related one coming up. There we go. It's the yeah. same thing, but without that's, the that's the same thing without the line drawn between okay. the two. 
And what we're also seeing is all the undulation there. Now, there you can see that's an aerial photograph of where the Gentry Tower is in yeah. the campground. And the Rim Road is marked as this number 300 in a little yep. box. That's yep. the Rim Road. And there's a T in the Rim Road right there. So they the boys never got to the main road, the dirt road. They were still in the forest three and a half, you know, 3.9 miles away. And so there's no way you could shine a light from that tower that would then stop in the canopy of the trees and not light up the ground or the rest of the forest. I mean, these boys didn't see a beam of light coming from the canopy of the trees, like all along the top of the canopy mm. of the trees. Yeah. They saw a light hovering below the canopy of the trees, lighting up above the trees and below the trees, right? But it, it wasn't a beam of light on the ground. The light was contained in the craft. Got it. Only Travis was hit by a beam. So there's a lot of confusion in some of these, these you know, video exposés you can listen to where people really don't know what they're talking about and they make uh, assumptions and accusations like, oh, yeah. well, the beam came out of the Gentry Fire Tower. That doesn't um, hold weight with me. I want to turn our attention to something else. And after I say what I have to, I I'd just like to open the floor to your thoughts as well. Um, I hope that for anyone who has had their doubts or completely decided that Travis Walton was a liar and uh, got caught in this mess, that you will reevaluate your point of view. We have a situation here that came out of nowhere and resonated on a very emotional level with a lot of people, probably for a number of different reasons. Travis Walton, alleges to have had an experience that for a lot of people he couldn't have had because such things don't happen, except that they do. And, well, you know, he's made some money on it. He's become famous, arguably. Um, he's been played by an actor in a movie. He's gotten to travel the world. Uh, people respect him. You know, who doesn't enjoy? Uh, well, uh, a lot of us don't. But somebody famous being attacked and taken down. <clears throat> it's, it's distracting. In America, for me, remembering as a boy the assassination of President Kennedy, and to this day, although I've studied it extensively like many Americans, I don't know whether Lee Harvey Oswald was actually involved, whether he was involved, if he was, whether he acted alone, but a phenomenon I will call the Oswald syndrome, namely, if you want to get to be famous really fast, shoot somebody really famous, allegorically or actually, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're a Mark David Chapman, kill John Lennon, you're a Charlie Manson, um, directing these terrible deaths in 1969, or you're some of the players in this event who none of us heard of less than a month ago, except the people that knew them, and now they're on the map and there's dialogue going on and uh, they're, they're people that people are listening to. Well, use your common sense. Use your critical thinking. Use your deductive reasoning. We have a situation here based on the premise of what if. 
And it really is infuriating in a way that the same argument, again, is waiting in the wings to for this Charlie Weiser person or the forces behind her to take down, um, as was observed earlier by Jim, the other most important UFO abduction case on record in the world, the Betty and Barney Hill case, that the tower solution, and in this case, the Cannon Mountain Observation Tower that Betty and Barney saw and somehow confused in their mind with an actual fully articulated UFO and then an abduction experience. This would be dismissible and entertaining, even funny, if it wasn't so infuriating, insulting to anybody's intelligence and destructive. Remember here also, we have people who had the courage to come forward and put themselves on record as having these experiences. And I include the courageous men, including Mike, who were witness to the experience that Travis Walton had. You set yourself up, and here we see it triggered 45 years after the fact again to be a subject of ridicule or attack. How do you think this resonates with people who have had these experiences and live in fear of being outed or would like to discuss them with somebody who are obsessed with them, who are run by them? Please mis don't misunderstand me here. I know many people who have had experiences that in retrospect or even as they happen were not negative and statistically uh, free. Uh, the organization has documented more and more of them. And I take those stats seriously. But as long as there's one person, and there's a lot more than that, who are suffering because of what happened to them and their inability for familial or society or work-related reasons or just their own constriction, and knowing that it may happen again, who won't come forward because the fear of God's been put in them, they'll be subject to something like this even 45 years after the fact. It stinks. And I want to add one more thought. Those of you who know me personally or who have come to know me in the way that we do with people who are broadcasters or what have you in the public realm, either know or have a sense I am not a conspiracist. I use deductive reasoning. I usually defer to the most mundane explanation unless it doesn't pan out and then work my way up to the more exotic ones. The fact is that this is happening at a remarkable moment in time without precedent in the 74 years that constitute the modern age of UFO sightings, so to say. Here we are several years into this period of time where the ridicule associated with the subject has dropped so dramatically that politicians, scientists, astronomers, um, public people can actually say, I take the subject seriously and not be taken down for it. More, we have now had, as of last month, a government report, the Pentagon report. For many of us, the information in it is, of course, in Shakespeare's wonderful words, much ado about nothing. I'm expecting, of course, that the unredacted version of the report that um, Congress, the president, people in the Pentagon, select people around the world and military industrial complex have gotten is considerably more intriguing. Expect more reports, probably several a year in perpetuity if they can drag it out that long. However, we are at a point right now where more and more people care less and less 
what other people think about what they think about the subject of UFOs, truly anomalous UFOs and their implications for humanity. And there are people, the people that move the chess pieces, the people we don't elect, the people deeply embedded in our intelligence community, in our government, in various offices and agencies who are not happy with what's going on. They've lost control of the dialogue. And what they can't do now is trot out all the old treadbare explanations that people accepted for decades or at least didn't complain about because the ridicule was attached if you did. Swamp gas, um, uh, anomalous weather conditions, um, secret weapons, um, um, brownie, one of my favorites, brownian movement on the eyelid, uh, on the surface of the eyeball, um, mass hallucinations, war jitters. What they can do, and I don't know this has happened, it could just be a bunch of useful idiots setting this in motion on their own, was create a bit of a shitstorm among people in the field. And everybody pulls up chairs and takes sides. For, for a lot of people, it's a sporting event. I'll leave it at that and just open it to you in the time that we have left. I'd just like to make one statement, very short. Um, you know, if, if Travis Walton case and the Betty and Barney Hill case uh, were able to be completely squashed and flattened, just imagine what would happen to a case like mine. And I understand Jen uh, Jennifer Stein has had one and many, many others. Uh, it's the Betty Hills and the, and the Travis Waltons that are upholding our truths. And I want that to continue. Thank you. Kathy? Yes. I would like to say that, well, my background is in social psychology social science and education. So I place a great deal of importance upon people's emotional reactions and on uh, the, the type of research, the quality of research that they do. When this woman, who I thought was a man because the name was Charlie, uh, contacted me um, she wanted me to just take a look at her website, and uh, so I did. And I got back to her, and I help a lot of people who uh, are trying to do accurate work. They come to me and, and ask me if I approve of what they've written, if it's accurate. And so I was doing the same thing with her. I thought, well, this is a young person probably who knows almost nothing about UFOs or abductions. And I wrote to her, I said, I know that it's easy to become confused, to get things wrong, because uh, there is a lot of false information out there. There are people who uh, have drawn attention to themselves by promoting uh, false speculation and uh, false stories, uh, taking apart a story and inserting uh, a little packet of false information in every part of the event that occurred. And so I said, I'm going to send you some information so that uh, you can see uh, what the fact is. 
So I was talking about Betty and Barney at that point. And there was a man in New Hampshire who was out for a ride. He decided to take a ride with his family. He knew almost nothing about the Hill case. And uh, he took a drive by the Mount Cleveland picnic area. And he said that you could see that light on top of Cannon Mountain from the Mount Cleveland picnic area and that this is what Betty and Barney saw all along. Um, well, that is simply absurd. I appeared on a radio show uh, with this man uh, who uh, admitted that this was the only, he made one trip with his family and then he wrote this, but it grew, uh, drew great attention from the UFO community and especially the, uh, you call them debunkers. I call them disinformants because they're not debunking the case. They are inserting false information in order to confuse the public. So I spoke to this man. He admitted that he knew almost nothing about it. I said, Betty and Barney knew about that light on top of the mountain. In fact, Betty said to me that she didn't think that it was as bright back in 1961. Uh, I went to the Mount Cleveland picnic area to see at night to see if I could see that light. I could not, but I did notice that there was a hill that I drove up uh, before I came down closer to the valley and I did see the light once from the top of that hill. And also I said, do you realize that Betty and Barney's uh, encounter or uh, event at Cannon Mountain where they saw that light inside a building that blinked out, uh, do you realize that their close encounter was miles south, at least five to eight miles south of where that light is on the mountain. It's not visible. And when Betty and Barney had that craft come down, swoop down over the road and stop 200 feet above their vehicle, they were miles. You can't, the light would have been behind them, but not visible. I've checked all of this out. Uh, I've done a very thorough investigation of this case. And I sent her the drawing that Barney drew when he arrived home. This is how the craft looked when it was 200 feet above the car. This is how the craft looked when it was 100 feet overhead. And, uh, and when he was standing in the field, he wrote, well, you could see figures on that craft. That is part of the record. That could not be debated. That was done the day that he arrived home. He and Betty sat down in separate places and drew what they remembered. But these people will still hang on to that light on a tower uh, story for some, for some reason. Either they're in denial, 
they're frightened. They're too frightened to admit that this is real. They work for an intelligence agency and they're debunking this, or they're just seeking attention, maybe. I don't know what this Charlie was doing, but I was a school teacher for uh, about 14 years, and I never gave a lot of attention to the students who failed, the students who got Ds or Fs on their papers, which is what Charlie deserves. Uh, <laughs> the attention went to the better students, those who didn't do shoddy work, those who were accurate, those who were good students. And, and I don't know why we're even using that name or giving any of this our attention because it doesn't deserve it. Kathleen, you're almost too cute to take serious. <laughs> you're a doll. Peter, let me jump in here as the producer. Everybody I just want to say thank you all for being here. Um, we're, we're right up against the next program, but thank you all for coming. You did a fantastic job. And Peter, thank you for addressing this issue so responsibly. Um, we didn't become friends with Travis because we all read about him and thought, oh my gosh, he's amazing. And we've got to get our hands on someone so famous. I think we all came to admire Travis and to believe in Travis because we all did our own investigation into what he said and we found it to be accurate. We found him to be truthful. We found him to be morally correct and factually correct in everything that he said since that day. And, um, right he made it really easy for me to count him as a colleague. And I, I don't really personally know Travis, so I can't be in that group. Although I've talked with him, I've sat close to him having breakfast before, if that matters, you know, but my investigation into looking into the facts in the case, you know, we've had a lot of people in this chat room tonight that, um, you know, of course they, everybody from the other camp came in to, you know, to try to take shots at everybody here. And it is so clear to me. I've been doing this 30 years and I've been in this media business for about 12 consecutive. And it is so clear to me, the people that you, not the bottom of the barrel people, but the ones when you kick the barrel over or knock it over and look under the barrel, that's the kind of people we're dealing with here in this new world where you can, you know, use the old Goebbels ideology of, you know, tell a lie a thousand times yeah. and it's the truth is what we're dealing with here. People who are trying to make a name for themselves to try to jump into a great big pond and take it over, we're going to get instant credibility. We're going to get instant fame because we were the ones who cracked this old case wide open and showed it to be true. Well, there's not enough statues that you can bring down. There's not enough flags that you can burn. There's not enough lies you can tell in this group because the problem is for people like you, Charlie, is you're dealing with investigators, a bunch of them, real ones. The people on this screen outside of myself are beyond reproach. Every one of them I count as some of the highest 
in esteem and, 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 and in regards to investigation, they, they are the best at what they do. And I wish Stanton Friedman was here too, Kathleen. Thank you for bringing him into this, all of you, because if Stanton says that you can take it to the bank, Amen. That man did. He he did the homework. He did the hard work. So Peter, I'm going to live it. Give it back to you. I just wanted to thank you guys and say my little two cents. Um, I've got a lot more than that that's going to be coming soon. But um, James Clarkson hit the nail on the head. I think with what he said, everything he said, and you too, Jennifer, Denise, Kathleen, Peter. Back to you, brother. Thank you, Rice. You're muted. Peter, you're muted. Peter. <laughs> Peter. You're muted. Not, a, not anymore. Great working with professionals, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> this is Peter Robbins, who you can now hear. Uh, the show has been Meanwhile Here on Earth on KGRA Digital Broadcasting. My outstanding guests this evening, who I am indebted to, are Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Jennifer Stein, and James Clarkson. Again, their websites are Kathleen's is Kathleen-Martin.com. Jennifer's is onwings.com, and that's W-I-N-G-E-S. It's on Wings Jim Productions. On Wings Productions. On Wings Productions.com. Or, or Travis Walton, the movie.com. Yeah. Also true. And uh, James Clarkson, um, MUFON, MU James, give it to us again because I've got the same typo James here. JamesClarksonUFO.com. Perfect. Uh, and Denise Stoner can be contacted via her email address, dmstoner1 at gmail.com. Next week's show will also be something of a departure uh, from our normal format. It will be a panel discussion between five women experiencers and or abductees, all active in the field and all mothers. Returning to the show, I am very pleased to say to take part in this unique discussion will be Kathleen Marden and Denise Stoner and previous guest Deb White-Cabell, the subject of Bud Hopkins' international bestseller, Intruders, The Incredible Visitations at Copley Woods, who also has her own New book out right now with August Night Press and Forgive Me, Deb. The title is escaping me at the moment. It will also include um, uh, two other extraordinary women, Tiffany Mack, who is a co-host of a weekly radio show here on KGRA Universal Secrets, and the extraordinary N.K. Cranda, experiencer, researcher, and preservationist of the incredible accounts of other experiencers and how they survive and thrive in the face of the phenomena. I will be posting a link to this archive of this show online, either late tonight or tomorrow. Please help this broadcast go viral. I can only add to that, stay well, stand up for what you believe in, and wherever possible, be kind. Amen.